Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Ground Waves. So nice to be together again. Thank you, Dunn, for that beautiful, beautiful opening. Tonight, we gather as the United States begins to write a new chapter of its story, with many calling for its opening theme to be the healing of a deeply divided nation. How does that healing begin? Some of it will come from the tone set by our leaders. As President-elect Biden has implored over the last several days, that regardless of how we voted, that we see our political opponents not as enemies, but as fellow Americans. Some of it will hopefully come from the restoration of basic civility, as people of different political views learn to talk and to listen to one another again. People, families, communities, leaders. Some of it will come from repairing and restoring the rule of law in our country. The idea that the law applies to everyone, regardless of their stature or power, and that our nation's laws are created and implemented through a process that is open and honest. You know, law and legal process hold deep resonance for the Jewish community. We are the bearers of a tradition framed by a commitment to halakha, to social and religious norms of behavior that both embody our particular values and promote the dignity of all human beings, indeed the dignity of all forms of life with whom we share the sacred planet. Many have tried to capture the essence of Jewish law. What is its animating force? What pulsates within the heart of our system of regulations that bring definition to Jewish community, to Jewish spiritual practice, to Jewish ethics? Law is about more than just rules, Rabbi Gordon Tucker reminds us in his essay, God, the Good, and Halakha, arguing there for a standard of morality that transcends the specifics of any halachic dictates and to which halakha is accountable. Yet even that can be hard to define in a unifying way for a community as diverse as ours, and even more so for a nation as large and as varied as this country. At the same time, as a new era for America was emerging on Shabbat morning, one was coming to a close for the Jewish people with the death of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Zichron Vracha, a giant of Torah, of Torah learned, of Torah lived, of Torah taught. And Rabbi Sachs was also one who modeled the possibilities of truly covenantal relationships with those with whom we may have profound disagreements, but those whose well-being, he showed us, must matter to us as much as our own. I'm often drawn to Rabbi Sachs's wisdom, and I often share it in my teachings, even though I also have some deep disagreements with a particular position of his here or there. On the question of the essence of Jewish law, Rabbi Sachs's insights capture a crucial observation about halakha that I think has a contribution to make in the restoring of the rule of law in America here and now. Quite simply, Rabbi Sachs taught in his words that in Judaism, Torah represents law as love and love as law. It's a beautiful, short, but profound statement. Torah represents law as love and love as law. 
Our sacred myths tell the story of a people and our God meeting and bonding in the wilderness, in a place that defies definition and shape, in order to establish the primacy of relationship, which is then formalized, as it was in the same Sinai wilderness, through obligation and commitment. Obligation and commitment that serve to frame and sustain a society, wherever it may take root, in which loving relationship is the organizing, governing principle and is manifested through the rules of justice, freedom, equality, and dignity. In other civilizations, he points out, first a land beckoned, and then came human settlement, which grew from small groups into villages and towns, and then its governance required a framework of civic responsibilities. But in our Jewish story, love comes before law, and law comes before land. The flow of responsibility and accountability is anchored in love. And this is what has enabled Jewish law and tradition to survive our millennia-long journey that has taken us through many lands. And in many ways, this is the core of Jewish political identity, whose practical expression in the land and in the state of Israel is the subject of ongoing debate, debate that's coming with increasing moral cost. What might this construct of law as love and love as law offer in the discussion our country now reopens about how to unite in word and in deed and in legislation a nation in need of healing? In lawmaker Congressman John Lewis's words from his book, Across That Bridge, he says, the civil rights movement above all was a work of love. And yet even 50 years later, it's rare to find anyone who would use the word love to describe what we did. Maybe it's a little less rare than we think. Listen to the words of our guest tonight, whom I'll introduce in just a few minutes, Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser, when he says, the purpose of the law is to serve people with compassion, empathy, and common sense. And when it becomes divorced from these values, it undermines trust and confidence in the rule of law. Maybe this is one way that the Jewish community can contribute to the collective American task of reweaving the fabric of our society and securing it in the embrace of compassionate and responsible legislation by helping to restore the primacy of love in the work of law. I know, I know, I know, I know. 
Phil Weiser is the 39th Attorney General of Colorado. As the state's chief legal officer, someone for whom public service is one of his core values, Attorney General Weiser is committed to protecting the people of Colorado, defending the rule of law, and building a department of law that serves all Coloradans. Previously, Weiser served as professor of law and dean of the University of Colorado Law School. He served in senior leadership positions in the Obama administration and was appointed to serve as a deputy assistant attorney general in the U.S. Department of Justice and as senior advisor for technology and innovation at the White House's National Economic Council. Earlier in his career, Attorney General Weiser co-chaired the Colorado Innovation Council and served in President Bill Clinton's Department of Justice. After graduating law school, he worked in Denver for Judge David Ebel. Am I pronouncing that right? Ebel. David Ebel on the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals and held two clerkships at the United States Supreme Court for Justices Byron White and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Attorney General Weiser lives in Denver with his wife, Dr. Heidi Wald, and their two children. He is the son of David and Esther Weiser, who are regular and beloved participants in Sha'ar gatherings. Welcome, Attorney General Weiser, and Mazal Tov on the bar mitzvah of your son, Sammy, this past Shabbat. Thank you. It's really great to be with you. Oh, we're so honored that you're with us tonight. Let's start by maybe you sharing a little bit with us about what it's like being the Attorney General of Colorado. What does this role mean? What does it mean to you? How does your impact upon the lives of Colorado citizens, um, how, how does that happen? How does it get experienced by your citizens? Let me try to uh, do it through three different uh, stories. One is when I gave a talk at Colorado State University, my background's in teaching and uh, I share your morning of Rabbi Sachs, this great teacher, and one of the learnings I have, I'm not even sure where I learned this, but when you talk to someone who sees things differently from you, don't try to convince them that they're wrong. Try to understand what leads them to see things the way they do. And so this individual came up to me after and said, I'm really upset that you're a champion of Colorado's red flag law, which gives, which creates a process to remove firearms from someone who is a significant danger to themselves or to others. And he says, I'm a big believer in the second amendment. This really upsets me. And so I said to him, you know, I have a question for you. I'm interested to know why are you more worried about a firearm being removed from someone who's a responsible gun owner as opposed to not removing a firearm from someone who's going to use that firearm to take their own life? And he said to me, that's a good question. I need to think about it. And just last week, I heard from an advisor at CSU who knows that student and said that interchange had a powerful impact on him because I heard him. I didn't judge him. And he has been reflecting and has a spirit of engagement. And I said to my advisor friend, please encourage him to enter my office. That's the first story. Um, the second story is in Southeast Colorado, which is the poorest part of our state. The housing stock there is really decrepit and blighted. Uh, homes where no one's living in it or only drug users are. Whoever owned it has left the community. And it's hard to rehabilitate it because it has asbestos in the homes. And it's you know, really expensive there to test for it and remove it. Um, we won a settlement, $60 million in a housing case to support housing 2012. We still have some of that money around. I asked how much of that money went to support Southeast Colorado with this terrible housing issue. The answer, none. Because the housing programs in Colorado aren't created to fit that problem. I said, let's solve this problem. 
which is critical for some of the poorest communities in our state. And working with the three community colleges there, we're giving at least $5 million and work on getting more to create training programs for people to test for, remove and rehabilitate the housing, putting it back in the community as an economic engine. And the third point is I get to meet all sorts of wonderful individuals who I otherwise wouldn't get to know outside of my bubble, whether it's going to black churches or whether it's Republican sheriffs, I am broadened by this experience. And so for me, this has been a really special journey to be on. And at a time when, as you put it so beautifully, our nation needs the rule of law. It needs empathy and compassionate leadership. I can always feel every day that I'm doing something to heal our world. And, and I, I suspect you've probably quoted from Pierre Kevot before, which is, it's not on us to repair the world by ourselves, but none of us are free to desist from doing our part. And I feel like I'm doing my part. You clearly are. Was there something that um, happened either in your, your own life or in the, the world around you that motivated you or inspired you to run for office? Because as you said, your prior career was in academia and public policy work. Um, what, what, what sparked that for you? Well, I don't know uh, if my mom has shared this with this group, but my outing her has helped her become more open about it. Um, my mom is one of the youngest Holocaust survivors. Her mom gave birth to her in a concentration camp. And so when I grew up, I was very close to my grandparents. They talked all about their history, which had a lot of trauma to it, but it had a lot of redemption and a lot of hope as well which is they believed they could have a better future. And for them, that was a very patriotic belief because, and my mom's reflected on this since, they connected that to the United States of America. So they were deeply patriotic, deeply grateful for this nation. So I grew up with a sense of love of country. And during our bicentennial, uh, my mom watched with me the Adams Chronicles, which talked about the Adams family, starting from, I guess, Sam Adams all the way to like Brooke Adams. And the arc of our nation's story as a redemptive story um, where the moral arc bends towards justice has always spoken to me. And so from a young age, I got involved in politics and was drawn to public service. And I did get very good mentorship and guidance that for me that meant law, law school and law would be a good path. Now, whether I would run for office was something that was initially a stronger impulse, but over time, I got more and more aware of how difficult it was. And it really took the 2016 election to kind of shake me into, okay, I need to do this. Now, my plans for 2016, you know, man plans, God laughs, was to work with the Hillary Clinton administration. I had a great experience working with President Obama, and I would have loved to go back work for a Clinton administration. The world didn't go that way. And in the world we're in, I had to ask myself, what am I going to do? What's my part? And my wife, who was incredibly supportive, really believed that it was to run for office. And this is something I told a group of people clerking for Ninth Circuit judges today. You can't just wait to get appointed to serve. You need to be willing to run for office, whether it's school board or city council or whatever body you can serve on. We need good people running for office. And so I had to basically um, look myself in the mirror and ask, would I do that? And this was an office that I believe would be an incredible platform to make a difference and would be one I would really relish the chance to do. So I looked at who else was running and thought, I think I'm the right person. And here I am. And here you are. That's an incredibly inspiring way of uh, 
of charging us to do what we can in our own spheres of influence to get out there and to be proactive about helping to make change. What are the ways in which state attorneys general work together across states to protect the rule of law in our country against corruption or authoritarianism? And how does a state attorney general balance the needs of their own state with the needs of the country around them? Do they clash ever? How do you realign them? They, they do clash potentially in the sense that there may be issues that affect Colorado in a particular way. And, and I will tell you, if that happens, my job is to defend Colorado. So for example, water out West is incredibly scarce resource. And I am focused on how do I serve Colorado and what legal protections we have here in Colorado. Um, if I was the U.S. Attorney General or head of the Department of Interior of the United States, I would have a different perspective on Western water than I do as Colorado's Attorney General. And that's the way our system works. Um, ultimately, the rule of law mediates disputes. I will represent Colorado against other states, against the federal government to protect Colorado. There are lots of times when my interests, I believe, are totally aligned with the United States of America. So, for example, this week we're in the Supreme Court against the state of Texas, against the U.S. Department of Justice about whether the Affordable Care Act is constitutional. Now, I deeply believe my interest defending health care for Coloradans is perfectly aligned with the rule of law in defending health care for Americans. So in a case like that, um, there's no friction at all. Got it. Can you share any thoughts or expectations that you have um, now in terms of how the Justice Department and state attorneys general will work together under a Biden administration? It's going to be different. Um, the Justice Department under our current president has acted um, in ways that I view as a threat to the rule of law. This Affordable Care Act case is probably the most prominent example, but there are other examples too. And so part of what I look forward to, and I worked at the Justice Department twice, so I know what a normal Justice Department operating procedure looks like. I, I, I look forward to normalcy. Um, I look forward to decisions being made through a process that has integrity to it, where I may not agree with every decision of a Biden Justice Department, but I believe that I will be able to take at face value why they're deciding what they're deciding. And I will be able to respect the decision even if I disagree with it. And this agreement may be for the reasons I said earlier, which is Colorado may have a unique interest or perspective. That's my job. And if we disagree, I may still end up suing a Biden Justice Department over some issue because of our needs in Colorado. But that's gonna be an exception. Right now, I'm continually watching matters come up that to me strike me as a pure affront to the rule of law saying they're not gonna do this, are they? Separating kids from their parents, diverting funds to create a border wall that Congress didn't appropriate money for, um, the Affordable Care Act case, putting illegal conditions, forcing us to do immigration enforcement on law enforcement grants that in effect seek to commandeer state officers to do ISIS deportation work. These are cases I'm all involved with that I would so much rather not have to have. Yeah. <laughs> so in, in that long list of urgent issues, which of course today also includes the pandemic, systemic racism, growing inequality, the economy itself, climate change, gun violence, as you mentioned in your opening remarks, it, what do you see as the highest priorities right now in our country in terms of the efforts to strengthen the rule of law? So I do believe that 
your quote that you gave me from the beginning is, is a central point. Part of the challenge we have right now as Americans, as Coloradans, is faith in our institutions and faith in the rule of law is in a very delicate position. And part of what I am reflecting on, and this is a little bit of a mea culpa for all of us who served in the Obama administration, in the midst of that crisis, financial meltdown, I think a lot of Americans didn't believe that government was working for them. I think a lot of Americans believed that what happened was bankers got bailed out, but people might have had their homes foreclosed on them, or that jobs were being lost by hardworking good people, but the really well-off people were fine. And right now in the pandemic, there's an eerie parallel here. Think about who's out of work in this economic distress, service workers, restaurant workers, a lot of people who are barely getting by are living on the razor's edge. But so-called knowledge workers, lawyers, entrepreneurs, tech executives are doing fine. That is a existential challenge because our society, if we don't have a spirit that we're all in this together and that economic inequality isn't being reinforced, um, we are gonna lose faith in our institutions. So if you said to me, what's the fundamental challenge? It's how do we make sure that we're putting our institutions to work in ways that people believe they're working for them as opposed to against them? As, the, as you explained it, it seems very clear that that has to be a first step in order to gain the trust, to be able to, in partnership with each other, make the changes that need to be made. Attorney General Weiser, you had the singular honor of clerking for Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and you've written about how that experience has had a, last, a lasting impact upon you and, and even upon your family, even upon your children. Um, I'm sure all of us are eager to learn a little bit about what that was like for you and how it has shaped you as, a, as an attorney, as a human being. Let me offer three lenses, if you will. The first is I will never work for a more demanding more exceptional lawyer than Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Every sentence she would speak, every sentence she would write was well thought out and was perfected. I had the experience of working for her, doing a lot of writing for her, and I think only once did I meet her standards of excellence, and that will always be part of my toolkit. I know what that looks like. It's super hard to reach. She would say, get it right and get it tight. So that's from a training craft standpoint, incredible gift to me. Number two, um, and I'll do two of these kind of together because I think they go together. One is she valued relationships with people with whom she disagreed, Justice Glia very famously, and had a lot of respect for him and was engaged with him. And secondly, her sense of equanimity, part of how she stayed in relation with him was that he could say things that might be offensive and she could find a way to laugh or not to let it get to her. And so when he sent her an early draft of the dissent in the Virginia Military Institute case that she authored and it said that women have a right to go to the Virginia Military Institute just like men do, she said it ruined her weekend, but it helped her get a better opinion. And that sense of equanimity and that sense of engagement is something that I also treasure and take from her. And then finally, her husband, Marty, for those who saw the documentary or the On the Basis of Sex movie, I take from her how important that partnership is. Um, and almost like the platonic ideal of her writing, the platonic ideal of the equal partnership in her marriage, 
also inspires me in my marriage and home life. Those are beautiful lessons. Beautiful lessons that uh, in in your writing, I can see um, they permeate your sense of your own of your own calling and the way in which you you execute your duties. Thank you for sharing that. You uh, another distinguishing feature um, and and really such a such a, a beautiful piece of how you present yourself and your vision is that you frequently refer to your Jewish heritage and to your family's Jewish history, as you did earlier, is the inspiration for the work that you do, and as you did also in your most recent blog post about the framing of tikkun olam for this moment in America. And you made reference to your mother earlier. I want to note that today, November 9th, marks Kristallnacht, which occurred back in 1938, a devastating and destructive pogrom leading to the Shoah. And uh, you share very widely uh, on, your, um, on your platforms that... Your mother, Esther, was born in Buchenwald the day before it was liberated by the American army. Can you tell us a little bit more about how your Judaism has played a significant role in your own professional vision and in the, the office that you occupy and the work that you do? First, and this is part of the pressure I put on myself, which then reverberated onto my mom, because I believe you need to build trust as a public official and our institutions are facing this crisis of trust, I started with the premise that I've got to be totally authentic if I'm going to run for public office. I could accept losing as long as people on the campaign trail said, that's the fill I know. So I wasn't going to try to like come up with positions that weren't true to me. I wasn't going to um, not be true to myself, which meant I was going to tell my story. And so I forced myself to tell my story and to talk about my Jewish values. And there are people who are uncomfortable hearing others talk about religion. I get that. I want to be sensitive to that. And I am well aware that my values, my perspective, my view of the world is shaped by my Jewish identity and Jewish learning. And I find great meaning, purpose, and guidance in our Jewish tradition. So that that's how I come at it. And my communications director, who's an atheist, for example, is able to accept that when he read that blog post, he said, you know, that rubs me the wrong way, but I know it's authentic to you. And part of how I have done this is that's my true north. I'm going to be authentic to myself. I do find great meaning. And I will say Democrats ignore talking about religion at our peril. So Martin Luther King didn't you know, shirk from talking about religion. That was part of his inspiration. It was part of how he brought people together. We need to find inclusive language and themes that speak to people. And that means speaking to people wherever they are and not censoring ourselves from being who we are. Because if you censor yourself, people sense that something phony is going on. And that's, that is actually part of why we have such cynicism about politics these days. A lot of people think politicians are all phony, don't care about them. And I view it as part of my job is to stand up against that. You know, it's an incredibly inspiring and, uh, and, and it must be a rather unique um, message that, that you represent in the world of American political leadership today. And it's, it's, it's very exciting. It's, it's what we would call truly uh, a Kiddush Hashem, the sanctification of the name, which 
you know, is a phrase that's most often used as a reference to actions that we can take that bring um, a sense of an enhancement or sanctification to God's name. But Hashem literally means the name, and I have no doubt that it enhances your name, your dignity, and your authenticity, as you describe. And it also brings great dignity uh, to the Jewish people. So I think it's, uh, it's a testament to you in, in, in framing your presence that way, not just as a, as a gift of, of truth to your citizens, but also to your community. And I, well, I really, I thank you for that. Thank I you. So, so I, I want to ask if I could take you back to a conversation that took place a while ago. This is something that your mom clued me into. Um, a conversation between you and the late Rabbi David Hartman, someone to whom we both share a personal connection. Um, a conversation about the significance of your Hebrew name, Pinchas. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that conversation, um, what it was that Rabbi Hartman shared with you, maybe what it was that you shared with Rabbi Hartman about your own sense of your name, your purpose, your destiny. First, Max Weber, who has the best essay ever written about politics called Politics as a Vocation. And Weber writes, to be effective in politics takes both, it's the slow boarding of hard boards. It takes both passion and perspective, which is to say those people who approach politics with like a quick win, you're not going to solve a problem. The housing issue in southeastern Colorado or the opioid crisis that we're facing in many parts of our community or reforming and improving our criminal justice system, those problems don't get fixed overnight with quick talking points. It takes passion and it takes perspective. Now, what Rabbi Hartman had to say was essentially Pinchas, who uh, commits a crime, which is, I think, a fair description of what he did. He killed two people, but he killed two people who were effectively perpetrating a plague. It was uh, a prince and someone from the, I think it was a Midian, uh, Midianite woman who were cavorting in the act. And that was spreading uh, a plague. I think 20,000 Jewish men died, something like that. And this was the, a prince doing this in front of Moshe. And if this act was allowed to keep going, it was only encouraging something which was killing the Jewish people. Pinchas, in an act of passion, some would say zealotry, went and killed them both with one spear right through them. Lots of, lots of good midrashim about this. Mm -hmm. And then the question was what to do with Pinchas. Uh, and Moshe wanted to maybe punish him. And God said, no, you can't punish him. You should give him a blessing of peace. Now, there's a lot of other Midrashim to understand what that meant exactly, but I think the point, first from just the text, the plain text, God said, don't punish him, so we can't just condemn him, which I would suggest in the Rabbi Harbin was not, you know, the right idea, which is we should understand, we should try to understand the text. And what the text is telling us here is his quality of passion was very important. Now, I think you can criticize him as lacking perspective. He might have been able to accomplish his goal in much better ways if he was not so impulsive. And one of the Midrashim is that he was going to be the head of the army, and this act disqualified him and put Joshua in that position. Um, but it, he did become a priest where he would channel his passion and even violent impulses for good purposes, sacrifices. And 
what one can say is you need both passion and perspective. And his passion may well have saved lives. Now, it would have been better had he not had to kill these two individuals to achieve that goal, but it also isn't fair to say that there's nothing redemptive about Pinchas and he should have been killed. Well, first of all, thank you for that Torah lesson. Um, and it certainly sounds in all that you've described about your work and about your inspiration that you as Pinchas are bringing that redemptive model of leadership um, and securing for Colorado and modeling for the rest of the country an approach to law that's filled with compassion, that's filled with humi humility, that's filled with responsibility, perspective, and love. I cannot thank you enough for giving us of your precious time tonight. And uh, we wish you much success and much fulfillment from your service. And may you and your family continue to enjoy blessings and smachot. Mazal tov again on Sammy's Bar Mitzvah. And may you go from strength to strength. We are grateful and inspired by your leadership. Thank you so much, Thank Attorney you. General Weiser.
what's on your mind, Don. <laughs> Beautiful. Along with Attorney General Weiser, I too draw on my family history in articulating a vision for my own work as a rabbi. In fact, one source that I draw on deeply, as many of you know, is my late grandfather, Rabbi Mendelowitz Zichronoli Vracha, someone whom the Attorney General's father, David Weiser, was, was acquainted with during his years in our shared hometown of Montreal, where for 20 years my grandfather served as the rabbi of the Young Israel Synagogue. Throughout his many writings, my grandfather argued that the core responsibilities of a rabbi were not educational or pastoral, but rather halachic, that the essence of a rabbi's work was to be a posek or a poseket, a decisor and an architect of Jewish law, one whose lens for Torah study was focused on establishing communal norms. My grandfather wasn't a pure legalist at heart. He was a leader who understood that he was shaping people's lives as they were lived individually and in relationship to one another. And as such, developing and articulating expectations and responsibilities around how to build healthy and values-based families and communities were the tasks that he claimed defined rabbinic work. To my grandfather, the fixedness of the Torah's laws had to live in a sacred but synergistic and creative tension with the fluidity and dynamism of the rabbinic tradition, a tradition that was and is informed by the continually evolving landscape of human life. In what many have called his courageous halachic philosophy, my grandfather taught that the spirit of the law is what's unchanging, while the letter of the law, its particular form and shape, is what must yield to ongoing re-examination and reinterpretation in response to how the world and its people change around it in both their seeking and their suffering. We've seen this courage reflected in legal scholars throughout our country's history as well, notably in the late, great RBG and her arguments for equal protection, which opened legal pathways to greater inclusivity and diversity in American life. And we see it in her protégés, like Attorney General Weiser. In my grandfather's view, the posseg, the legal scholar, the legislator, and the leader must be equipped not just with impeccable learning and scholarship, but also with imagination and with boldness to speak their mind even in the face of what's become accepted wisdom. It was my grandfather who taught me the difference between a parrot and a rabbi. One repeats everything that they've been taught, while the other takes what they've heard and learns to convey it in new and relevant ways. We see this imagination and we see this boldness also in many of our political leaders, and it can be a potent tool in renewing the soul of our country. With humility, I would add to my grandfather's list of leadership qualifications, as I suggested earlier, that they must also be equipped with love, with Ahavat Yisrael, a love of our people, and Ahavat Habriot, the love of humanity. This, too, is a critical ingredient in our national healing now. And as, as I've been writing and teaching in the last several days, that love is powerfully demonstrated through curiosity, through endeavoring to know and to understand the others with whom we share our communities and our country. The same message that we heard Attorney General Weiser share just a few minutes ago. And as he shared as well, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself modeled that and taught that in the realm of legislation 
where engagement and dialogue she taught leads to better decisions. And all of us can undertake this work in ways large and small. It's time. I'm going to close with the words of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs once again. He said, Halakha aims at creating an ideal society, but it must always be workable within a real society. And as we've learned tonight from our guest, Attorney General Reiser, and I hope from these reflections, the bridge between the real and the ideal is built from the love. It's built from the listening. It's built from the loyalty that we show not just to our own views, but to those of all with whom we call this place home. And in this work, in this bridge, in this bridge building, we're not just engineers. We're also artists. So let us imagine together and let us build.
an inspired choice. Beautiful done. Friends, next week uh, on Ground Waves, we'll be welcoming Professor Bob Pollack, who is a professor of biological sciences at Columbia University, the former dean of Columbia College, whose current interests include discussions about matters at the intersection of science and Judaism, um, such as exploring the ways that one's Jewish identity emerges through our lived experiences rather than through our biological ancestry. He's also very interested in what it is that the coronavirus is telling us about the biological dynamics at the heart of human and planetary life. Future guests on Ground Waves coming up include a speaker from the First Nations community on November 23rd as we'll be preparing for Thanksgiving, where our discussion will focus on understanding that holiday from the perspective and experience of that community in ways that we can bring more mindfulness into our observances of Thanksgiving. We're looking forward to welcoming authors Anita Diamond, Nessa Rappaport, and the principal violist of the Israeli Philharmonic Orchestra, Miriam Hartman, in addition to uh, just a, a flow of amazing, amazing people and voices with whom we'll be in conversation in the coming months. This coming Wednesday night, our Justice Bait Midrash continues with the start of a new unit on building a just and pluralistic society. We will look at the move from I to we and about how to foster healthy disagreement in community strategies for productive pluralism. We'll be meeting at our usual time of 7 p.m. Please be sure to register and watch for the source sheets, which will be shared on Wednesday uh, during the day for you to print or download to bring to our session. Please save the date Thursday, sorry, Tuesday, November 17th at 8.30 p.m. We're going to be joining with our partner Green Faith and some Canadian partners at the Faith in Common Good um, organization for a global TEDx event to kick off mobilizing for Sacred People, Sacred Earth, which is the biggest ever grassroots global multi-faith COVID-friendly climate action that is being planned for March 11th. This is all part of Countdown, the special TEDx platform that has been created for climate action. And we are very proud to uh, partner with Green Faith in this urgent, urgent work. So watch our emails for details about how to register. And please also hold the following dates, November 21st, our next Shabbat morning service, um, and November 22nd, when the Armchair Pilgrim Supper Club will be traveling to Izmir, Turkey, along with Rav Chaim Ovadja, with Dan Nadel, of course, and some of um, Dan's friends, musicians from Turkey, who will be joining us as well. We're going to close, as we always do, with a prayer, with a kavanah. And after we say goodnight, I invite anyone who wishes to stay on just for a few extra minutes to say hello for a short schmooze. Uh, we will not be dividing into breakout rooms. We'll just be staying together for those who wish to, to hang around for a few minutes and have a chance to say hi. I'm going to offer tonight a kavanah on the sacred work of learning and legislating for one's community and society. The Talmud in Masechet Brachot teaches that when Rabbi Nechunya ben Hakana would enter his study hall and when he would leave it, he would offer a brief prayer in each of those moments of transition, of entering and of exiting. And this is what he would say when he entered the place where learning and listening and reflecting and where the making of consequential decisions for the community would take place. He would say, 
May it be your will, Adonai my God, that no offense occur through me, that I stumble not in the matter of halacha, that my colleagues have occasion to rejoice in me, that I pronounce not anything clean that is unclean or unclean that is clean, that my colleagues stumble not through me in the matter of halacha, and that I may have occasion to rejoice in them. And when he'd leave that sacred space, he would offer a short prayer of thanks for his portion. For his portion. Rabbi Mishael Zion explains, he gives thanks. Rabbi Nechunia ben Hakana gives an acknowledgement, a noble and universal sentiment, the expression of gratitude. But he doesn't express gratitude for his destiny or for his calling expresses thanks for his portion. As he leaves, he demarcates this area which is his portion. This language of his portion is him acknowledging that he is part of something larger than himself, that he is simply one piece in a grander scheme. But it is his portion. Same way that Attorney General Weiser wrote, and as he shared with us tonight, In the Jewish tradition, we are each called on to heal the world. But we are taught that it's not on any one of us to do this work by ourselves or to do it completely. It's simply that we are not free to desist from doing our part, our portion. He wrote how each day gives us the opportunity to be our best authentic selves while also acting with empathy for others to find ways to heal our world. Attorney General concluded, this is what Abraham Lincoln had in mind when he called on our nation at the end of the Civil War. And he quotes, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in and to bind up the nation's wounds. Thank you all for being with us. Laila Tov. Good night. See you all soon. Stay well. Stay healthy.